Aloha, and welcome to the Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe. Today, Pastor Ralph will be in his From Panic to Power series with a message entitled, Moving from Despair to Destiny, Absorbing God's Peace. We'll be in Philippians chapter 4, and now, here's Pastor Ralph. Moving from panic to power. (laughs) Moving from a place where fear and worry and depression and anxiety and frustration and anger are dominating your life to a place where with God's help and God's strength. And you may be sitting here going, I don't even barely know God, but he's there for you. With God's help and God's strength, we move to a place where our lives are under control. We're experiencing the peace of God and things are working. Things are working. Working for our family, working for our kids, working in our businesses, working with our relationships with our neighbors. And so there's so much packed into this very short little passage of scripture. It's going to take me three weekends to get through it. I think you're going to enjoy it. Start with verse 4 of Philippians 4. Always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Let everyone see that you are considerate in all that you do. Remember, the Lord is coming soon. Don't worry about anything. Actually, it says don't be anxious about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. If you do this, you'll experience God's peace, which is far more wonderful than the human mind can understand. I'd like for you to take a pen and underline the words, you will experience God's peace. In fact, the whole sentence, if you do this, you'll experience God's peace. It goes on and it says, His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Underline those words. His peace will guard your hearts and minds. Verse 8. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let me say one more thing as I close this letter. Fix your thoughts on what is true, honorable, and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely and admirable. You know, when we're stressed out, we don't think about things that are lovely. We think about everything that's wrong or everything that's hurting us, and often we're obsessing about those things. We can't get our mind off of them. And so the Bible is talking about some proactive things that we can do here with God's help. It goes on in verse 9 and says, Keep putting into practice all that you learned from me and heard from me and saw me doing. Any pastor ought to be able to say that. My life is consistent with my message, and so the stuff you saw in me, well, you do that, and things will work out pretty well for you. But he says, if you do this, then I want you to underline this too. The God of peace will be with you. Three times he offers us peace in that passage. Peace. There's a picture of a man on the screen. He's kind of one of my idols in life. And I, I just got to kind of tell you a little bit of the backstory. If, if I ever had to choose one individual that I would say is a kind of a, I don't like to use the word hero, but you know what I mean. It, it, it's somebody I would like to be a lot like this person. I would like to be a lot like Winston Churchill. And I wouldn't want to be totally like Winston Churchill, but I would like to be a lot like Winston Churchill. I have four different times in my life I've read four different biographies of Winston Churchill. And the last one that I, was, I read was called The Great Man. And uh, the reason that I wouldn't want to be totally like Churchill, Eddie, stand up. When Winston Churchill was a five-year-old boy, he, this is where they got the theme, The Great Man, because it, it occurred all through his life. He would do this every time he got really mad at somebody, but it started when he was a little kid in school, and he, and, he, and he got mad at a playmate, and he put his hands on his hips, and he said, when I grow old, I will be a great man, and you will be nothing. <laughs> Ooh, we're talking arrogance. And that little, that little paragraph popped up in his life 
numerous occasions. Churchill went to, to in, in, into government. He, was, he eventually became the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, he got in government. He got bounced out of government. He was pretty much running the British Navy during the, Second War, the First World War. He had a strategy for kind of nullifying the enemy by skipping over power bases and just kind of leaving them in the rear, and it blew up on him. And there was terrible tragedy in World War I because of Winston Churchill and his naval strategies. But Douglas MacArthur picked up the exact same strategy, copied it, and used it to win the war in the Pacific against the Japanese. Churchill was an incredible man. Churchill is out of government, out of favor, out of power. And Adolf Hitler comes to power in the, in the European continent. And it's far worse than we can ever imagine. You know, the, the, the Prime Minister of England flies to Berlin and has this conference and basically gives away all of Czechoslovakia and a couple of other minor countries and comes back to announce peace. We've achieved peace in our time. And then Hitler unleashed his minions and things begin to just nation after nation topples. You know, Belgium is gone. Holland is gone. Norway is gone. France is gone. That's the big one. He opens up a front against the Russians and he begins to bomb London on a nightly basis. Meanwhile, in the south of Europe, his ally Mussolini is, is raising up and conquering all of southern Europe. The Japanese, the third part of the Axis, are doing their damage in the Pacific and it's more than Pearl Harbor. It's in, in China, in Manchuria, it's in the Philippines, it's in Singapore. They're dominating Southeast Asia. It looks like this three Axis powers are soon going to control the entire world with the exception of the Americas, North America and South America, because we're basically islands in the midst of all of that. And this, this massive landmass that, that connects together, including North Africa, where the Germans are, 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 are beginning to threaten the world's supply of oil. And this thing is going down bad. And Britain looks like it's on its last days. If Hitler would have prevailed, we would live in a world, the best case would be that, that the, the Americas, North and South America, are isolated and surrounded by hostility on all sides. It would be far worse than the thing with the, the Soviets was that we called the, the Cold War. Far, far, far worse. And if they'd gotten the bomb, and it was actually their scientists that escaped and that we got a hold of that helped us to get the bomb, if they'd have gotten the bomb, who knows where the world would have gone. In England's darkest hour, their government said, we need a leader who is arrogant enough to stand up against Adolf Hitler. And that was very easy for them to choose which leader they wanted. The most arrogant man alive. And they called on Winston Churchill. And Churchill was a man who believed in God. He was a man that had many faults. But he was a man that would have a resolute character and courage. And the famous, basically, first speech that he, that he gave after being chosen to be the Prime Minister and to, to, to bring this nation that looks like it has maybe 45 to 60 days to survive, to bring it back from the brink of destruction. And he, and he makes this very famous speech. He was, he was good for short speeches. The speech is a little longer than this, but the famous sentence is, I offer you nothing but blood, sweat, toil, and tears. But the real message was, we can turn this thing around. In the midst of this darkness, Churchill says, if the British Empire lasts for a thousand years, may men always say that this was our finest hour. Our finest hour. 
Good night. They're bombing our cities. If you watch the Chronicles of Narnia, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, those little kids that had to be moved off to the countryside, separated from their parents, and move in with total strangers were there because of the nightly bombings of, of Britain. This thing was horrendous. And the United States was fast asleep. We were isolationists. We didn't want to be in the war. All this. And this one man comes and stands up against all of this. Now, what has this got to do with rejoicing the Lord and absorbing God's peace? Well, you've got to set the table. You've got to put yourself in the position where you're, you're, you're joining hands with God. You're becoming an ally with God in the battle that you face, the spiritual warfare that is your life. The struggles that we have, Paul says to us in the scripture, are not against flesh and blood. That person that's out to get you at work is motivated by a dark force they don't understand. And we stand against them. Those thoughts that come into your mind that won't give you any peace and any rest. The, 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 the Bible calls those flaming darts sent to you by Satan. Attacking your mind. And for us to absorb peace, much like Churchill was able to absorb peace, we've got to first come and say, we're going we're to draw some alliances, and we're going to stand up. And Churchill was able to, to help draw the United States into the conflict. We had the power to do the thing. They were weak. But Churchill stood. That's the issue. He stood firm. He stood up. He rejoiced in God. He many times led the entire nation in prayer. And in the midst of all of this darkness and all this tumult, you know, you see a guy up there giving the peace sign. Only it wasn't the peace sign. It was V for victory. It was V for victory. In our darkest hour, we're anticipating victory. And that's where we want to get ourselves today. Does that make sense? And, and we are in a struggle. We are in a combat. And it's difficult. And as Paul writes to us, I'd like your Bibles to be open in, in Philippians and follow along and write some notes and Maybe I'm going to give you some other scriptures and you could write them as cross-references in your Bible. Your Bible will become more useful to you as you do that. I, I, I want to give you Paul's backstory. As he's writing this, he's in jail in Rome. And from what we can deduce from history and people who've studied this a lot say that, that the guy is, you know, you read about it in the, in the book of Acts. He gets in trouble in the temple. They think he brought a, a Gentile person into the temple and everybody was going nuts and a riot ensued and all of that. And then there was a plot to kill him and... And so Paul is not even trusting the court system. And he goes, I appeal my case to the emperor. Well, now he's in Rome. He's been in prison for about three and a half years. And he's, and he's in Rome. And he has appealed his case to the emperor. And as near as we can tell, as he writes this little four-page letter to the church at Philippi to encourage them, it's the night before he's going to find out, does he live or die? And in this system, he's worn out the appellate process. And they execute quickly. So he may have less than 24 hours to live. And he's writing stuff like, Rejoice in the Lord. You know, it, it's, I mean, how do you do that in the midst of, what would you be thinking if you knew that your head might come off your neck uh, sometime in the next 24 hours? I mean, what would, where would, you know, would you be able to even eat? And so here's Paul, and he's, and, and in chapter 1, he's telling these people, I don't even know if it's better if I, if I stay here and be with you guys, or if I just get to go and graduate and go to heaven and be with the Lord. In fact, that would actually be far better but I think it really suits God's purpose for me to be here with you because you need me in your life. And, but what I want you to do is be filled with joy and you be rejoicing in the Lord. In fact, in this very short little letter that he writes, 12 times he uses the word rejoice and a whole bunch of other times he uses the word joy on the eve of what could be his death. And he says, I want you to be rejoicing in the Lord. And then he says, and, and I think I'll be spared. And if I am, you'll have even more reason to rejoice. And then he says this. And this, is the, this is the key. This is what makes him a lot like Winston Churchill. 
Because whatever in the world happens to me, I want you to behave yourselves like people who trust in the Lord. And you refuse to be intimidated by your enemy. And he's talking about the devil. Which will be a sign to him of his destruction and your victory. A sign to him of his destruction and your victory. You know, you look at the Churchill thing. They say that Churchill could build anything out of words. But that Adolf Hitler could destroy anything with words. Hitler was a master of, of oratory. He could inflame people toward destruction. One man stands up and goes, we can win. Apostle Paul is saying to you and me, that you and I should become people who refuse to be intimidated by our enemy. How do you do that? Well, the weapon that seems to be placed in our hands here is rejoicing. Now, rejoicing tends to be, in American vernacular, a kind of a, of a, of a, of a soft, uh, passive word. Oh, something nice happened to me. Oh, it's so nice. You know. Ah. But Paul is saying, not rejoice in your circumstance. He's saying rejoice in the Lord. In other words, rejoice that God is on your side. And that means we win. And he's talking about rejoicing in a way that's not some mamby-pamby kind of a, well, if something good happened to me, I'll be happy today. If something bad happened to me, I'll be miserable today and make everybody else miserable around me. What he's saying is, you get on the stick and you get happy about the fact that God is bigger than whatever your problems are and you count on that and count on the victory that's coming. And as you do that, you are eroding Satan's confidence in his policy toward you. You there? That's good. <laughs> Let's look at this scripture here. It says, always, always be full of joy in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. Well, I'd like you if you have a pen in your hand because I can help you make your Bible a better tool. I want you to to retranslate some of this. You know, the way that we get our Bible is the Old Testament was written down in Hebrew because it was written to Jewish people. The New Testament was written down in Greek because it was written amongst Jewish people. But by that time, much like English today, everybody spoke Greek as a trade language. So you could go anywhere in the world with Greek. And so they wrote the New Testament in Greek. And the, the Bible keeps getting translated from Greek and Hebrew into English over and over again. And you go, well, why is that? Well, because English keeps changing. One of the most concise, in other words, not wordy, short phrases, pinpoint accurate translations of the Bible that we have is the ancient King James Shakespearean version of the Bible. English king named James paid for this team to translate the Bible, and they did a wonderful job, except it's loaded with these and thousand words we don't understand. And, and so they, 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 we can't use that translation. You won't understand it very well. I can draw from it. I'm going to in a minute. But we don't just use it. And, and they keep translating. You know, when I first was a pastor, I used something called the New American Standard Version of the Bible. And then the New International Version. And now the New Living. And why I chose this one is it's the easiest to read one there is. But sometimes it's just thinking wordy. And you know what? Nobody's changing the Bible. It's English keeps changing. Can you remember long time ago in a faraway place when a mouse was something that ran around on the floor of your house and you tried to trap and that you wouldn't know what anybody meant if they said the, the phrase snail mail. See? The world has changed and language continues to change. So we have to keep updating our versions of scripture. And, and sometimes every translation has weakness to it. I mean, if I was preaching out of the King James, I'd be telling you the places where they blew it. And you can get a little more accurate. And so as you look at this part and it says, always be full of joy in the Lord. I, I say it again, rejoice. Here's how the King James says it. And you ought to cross your Bible out and write this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say rejoice. I mean it gets to the point. Always be full of joy in the Lord. 
Ugh. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Get it on is what he's saying. Well, you know, how do you, how do, you do that? I mean, how do you, when, you know, when things are going rotten, how do you get above it all? Because this is the problem. We become prisoners of our own emotions and the little thought bombs, the little fiery darts that Satan sends our way. How do you get out of that? Well, you got a bodyguard. And you rejoice in your bodyguard. When I was in high school, I went to high school, I weighed 115 pounds dripping wet. And I was that way all the way till I was married and my wife started fattening me up. I, it just, I, I was a skinny, scrawny little kid. And any, anybody who wanted to pick on me could get away with it. But the first day of high school, they assigned us lockers in the hall. Because in Oregon, you got to have coats and raincoats and all that to get to school. And I got a locker partner named Bill Coleman. Bill Coleman, at 14 years old, weighed 265 pounds. He was 6'3 and a half. That year, he became the varsity heavyweight wrestling champion for the state of Oregon, and he made all-state defensive tackle varsity. He was a big, powerful guy, and he was my friend. <laughs> and you didn't mess with me because of Bill. And one time in our senior year, I, I had the privilege of, we hung out together for four years. I had several friends that were just my friends all the way through. But Bill and I, I, we, we got a job in the same place and we used to, we'd sneak out of school. We'd, we'd go in and, and, and tell the office we were sick and, and then we'd meet in the hall and call our moms and say, I feel better now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay at school, you know, and do all that and go to work and earn money. And uh, one day we were doing that and we were walking cause we'd, we'd, to save bus money because we were into money. We'd walk about two miles to where we worked and one day I led them to the Lord walking to work in the midst of skipping school. <laughs> in our senior year, about four months before we graduated, I was sitting in the cafeteria talking to some guys I didn't know very well. And I don't know what happened, but one guy was just basically showing off to his friends. He just threw a milkshake all over me. A half drink chocolate shake. Just threw it all over me. Just all over my shirt. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, he was bigger than me. I sure wasn't going to beat him up. You know, I, I just was, I was freaked out by it. And so I, you know, I, I was embarrassed. I mean, I was a skinny little kid with fangs and hair that'll never do what it's supposed to. And all that zits on my face and and, and insecure as I'll get out, and I'm doing my best to wipe the shirt clean with a napkin. I go in the bathroom, and I'm trying to get the sticky off my chest and everything, and Bill shows up. What happened to you? And I told him, who did this? And I told him, we're going to take care of this. You come with me. And I go, no, no. No, you're coming with me. And about five minutes later, we had walked the entire length of the campus, and we found this guy. And there's about 35 or 40 people gathered around to watch him on his knees apologizing to me and offering to get my shirt laundered. <laughs> Saying the words that Bill forced him to say. Well, you know what? You rejoice in the Lord because the Lord has got the thing under control. And that's really what he's saying. You know, there's this deal in the Old Testament. There's this prophet named Habakkuk. And he lives in a time when the nation is in just misery and decline. Everything is wrong. The people have turned their back on God and... And God is, is kind of abandoning them to their own devices. And things are going like downhill. And, and so Habakkuk is an honorable man. And, he, and he's seeking God. And he's trying to do the right thing. And he's suffering because of all the junk that's going on around him. And, and then God delivers the bad news. And he says, it's going to get worse. And then it'll get better. And by the way, it's your job to go tell them it's going to get worse because of their misbehavior. And then it'll get better. But I'll bless you in the middle of it. And so Habakkuk goes and, and, he, and he makes this incredible statement and, and, and I want you to, to read it and I want you to, if I can communicate it, I want you to see the, 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 the tenacity that's in the statement. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms 
And there's no grapes in the vine, even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren. Though the flocks die in the fields and the barns lie empty, then I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. The sovereign God is my strength. The sovereign God, the God who is over all, who's got hands on it all, who's in control of it all, is my strength. He is my salvation. And whether you know God intimately, or you barely know him, or you're trying to get to know him, you've got to know he's there, and when you call on him, he answers, and he does stuff. One of the things I always try to get people to do is write down your prayers in a journal, because you, you pray, and then you forget about it, and God answers it, and you don't remember to say thank you. But in the thank you process, you're going, whoa, he sure pulled that one off in a way that surprised me. And it builds your faith. And Paul is telling us to rejoice in the Lord because it becomes our tool against the, the, the schemes of the, the wicked one that comes to destroy us and to ruin our lives. And God wants to bless us and, and strengthen us and get us above and beyond all of this. Am I making sense? Yes. About three and a half years ago, I struggled through what they called a panic anxiety attack. I've talked about this a lot, but whenever I get on this subject, I've made a commitment to God that I'll always talk about my situation just at least a little bit because I know it can liberate some of you. I had a bunch of problems in my life. Uh, the biggest one was that my wife was going through cancer treatment. Uh, I was getting up early in the morning, going to the hospital with her. I'm a sleeper. I wasn't getting the sleep that I need. Uh, I, had a, I, had, I had financial troubles. My, my, all my investments... Had, this, had tanked in the stock market. Remember the dot-com deal all that? We'd had real estate investments. We moved into the stock market just in time to watch it go. I had a person in my life that, uh, that is not a person in this congregation, and it sure isn't my wife, that was just causing me grief for years and years and years and years. It was political, and, and I didn't start the thing, and I couldn't get it to end, and I'd gone and confronted the person, and it just wouldn't get over with. And it just it, that was eating at me like a cancer. They're just all kind of things. And one day, I had a simple little problem, and it made me pop. And I just couldn't sleep. I'd had trouble sleeping for several days, but I just went for, uh, for two nights, no sleep. So you stack that all together, it's like about 72 hours with no sleep, or, or close to that, 60-some hours with no sleep. And I was really freaky. And my wife calls the doctor, because I wasn't up to it, and asks, can I come in? And he says, I can't see him for three days. She gets off the phone. I'm freaking out more. Uh, I go call him back and ask if I can go to emergency. As soon as he hears that, he goes, describe him to me. She describes him. He says, get him in here right now. He gave me a little tiny pill. I remember standing in line at Long's to pick up that prescription. It's the longest line I've ever been in in my life. And it probably was. I wasn't probably there for five minutes. But I was freaked out. I was at the point that I could not concentrate. And it didn't just get all over. I got the pill, I got calm, and then it started trying to adjust things, and I got freaked out again. At one point, I thought I couldn't even have enough focus left to preach. I called the doctor up and said, you know, you're my doctor, but you're my friend. You've got to be straight with me. Will I ever have my mind back again? I was that far out. I'm telling you this for two reasons. One is, before this happens, see, I, I am not one of these people who believes God makes bad things happen to you so you can empathize with other people. I believe that when evil happens, Satan is the author of it. But I think that part of the good that God brings out of it in the victory is that you can empathize with other people. And if you came to me before this event in my life and you told me that you were going through depression or you had anxiety 
and they put you on medications, I would tell you you're not very spiritual. And you need to pray more. And you need to just get serious with God and it'll all go away. But then I found out I was so strung out, I couldn't even decipher where I was with God. And I needed the pill. And I say this because I know that there are people sitting in this room today that are seeing a doctor, you're struggling with stuff, and, 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 and I get up here and preach about rejoicing in the Lord, and you start going, oh, there's something wrong with me. i got to get off the medicine. You know, I, and, and don't, don't even let the devil throw that little missile at your head. If you need the doctor, you need the doctor.